This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That's me. This is powered by digital media. Today's sponsor is SoFi. SoFi is transforming the world of finance for the better. That's good. They offer great rate loans and help their members in ways that big banks can't. Visit SOFI.com. That's SoFi.com to learn more. Terms and conditions apply at SoFi.com. Today's show is also sponsored by Mac Weldon. They make awesome hoodies, sweatpants, underwear, and socks. I am wearing the socks right now. I've paid for them with my own money. Dan, I showed you them earlier. Are they awesome? They look really good. I wanted to ask you about them because I'm always in the market for new socks. They look awesome. They feel great. They're wool. They're, they're made of antimicrobial fiber, which means they eliminate odor, they tell oh, me. Oh, yeah. I can't vouch for that. I'm going to check them out up close after we do this, all right? They're super good. You can wear them on dates. You can wear them to podcasts. like old man slippers? I I go around like old man slippers in a bathrobe a lot. You can wear them at home with your old man slippers, but you can wear them outside. These are pretty cool to show off. If you want to order them, which you should, you go to MacWeldon.com. You get 20% off your order with the promo code RECODE. That helps me too and Dan eventually as well. At MacWeldon.com, the promo code is RECODE. If for some reason you do not like this product, you can just hang on to it. They will send you your money back. That's how commerce works in 2016. 20% off. It's good for you. It's good for me. Go to MacWeldon.com. Use the promo code RECODE. Dan Lyons, welcome to the sock sale hour. Are they expensive? How are the prices? Like you pay a little more, but they're really good. Yeah, yeah. They are genuinely awesome. I've genuinely bought them with my own money. But now let's talk about you. You've got a product to sell. I used to work with Dan Lyons a very long time ago. That's right. At Forbes. At, back at Forbes when you were merely Dan Lyons, then you were fake Steve Jobs, then you were Dan Lyons, super celebrity author. Now you were Dan Lyons, author of Disrupted. You missed the schmuck period in between the there. The total well, schlub, the schlub, you, you, the wilderness. There's some the lemons and now you made lemonade. Right. Here, let's, uh, you, you tell us the name of your book one more time. We'll say it a uh, bunch of times. Uh, the book is called Disrupted, My Misadventure in the Startup Bubble. This is about a year you spent with a company called HubSpot. Yeah, a software company. I thought I would be really clever and smart and I was going to be done with the media business because it was imploding. I got laid off at Newsweek and I looked around and there weren't any jobs. And I thought, I'm not old enough to retire or rich enough to retire and I have little kids. And and I thought, okay, I'm going to go cross over. I cover tech, so I know the tech business. I know a lot of people in the tech business. I'm going to go work for a tech company and I'm going to do the rest of my career as a sort of marketing guy of some kind. And it and didn't work. St- and it didn't work. It, 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 it didn't, didn't work. work. We, I want, we're no, thanks talk, for we're fucking gonna, you ruined the ending now. I know, I know. Now but it, says my, it, it says my misadventure in the yeah, startup bubble. But it's supposed so. to be suspenseful. And there's a unicorn the slash donkey that's scary. I no. think you say in the beginning that it, that it all went to shit. Yeah, I destroy the suspense right up front. Yeah. And it's a great book. I've read it. It made me genuinely anxious as I was reading it. I want to talk to you a bit mm. about that. And I want to talk about your whole career. But let's start off with the book first. It's available today. You should go buy it. This was not your intent was to write the book, right? You actually no. wanted to have this job at this company called HubSpot. You were, and I you was were thinking, done being a writer, basically. Well, I thought I would write, but inside the context of a company. So what I saw was Microsoft launching this big thing called Microsoft Stories. Uh, GE has a thing called GE Reports, which our friend Tomas Kellner from yeah, Forbes, Forbes runs. Yeah. And Adobe was launching a publication. Oracle had a newsroom. Uh, the branded content business. Yeah. So I thought, okay, uh, that's where, where gonna... companies that normally buy advertising are now creating essentially their right. own advertising. And and that made sense to me. Why would you go buy ads that are basically not very effective and people don't? Oh, and except for the ads on on this podcast, which of course are very effective, which are anyway. awesome. But I so I, I thought, okay. In fact, at the time after Newsweek, I was briefly running this blog or website called ReadWrite. And our challenge was we just couldn't sell ads. We didn't have a big enough audience. And you realize like that market is going to size and scale and CPMs are coming down. So it seemed challenged to me. So I thought, okay, there are all these companies now that want to tell their story and they'll hire journalists. VC firms are doing the same thing. 
So I thought, oh, I'll go do that. That'll and I'll do that. And that should that'll run a while. And I've got you know, ten or fifteen more years to work. And that'll be if I jump in here at this little company, make a name for myself, do a good job, maybe build a publication for them that gets some some attention and buzz. It'll also get attention and buzz for me. In a few years, they'll go public, and I'll do okay. And then I'll go to the next thing. And I could maybe become maybe even you know become sort of a guru about corporate content. Either either work at another company, or I actually thought, and I talked to people about this, other ex Forbes people about. You could create a company that provided branded content for people, so like sort of contently what they do in New York. So th- there's either an opportunity to start your own company. So anyway, I thought this is my way to d- but, dip my yeah, toe But you didn't think you were going to go be sort of an I – mean, later on you describe yourself as a cultural anthropologist, I think, sort of once you realize it's not mm-hmm, going to work mm-hmm. out. But your intent you, – you went into this with good faith. I want to work at this company. Yeah, yeah. I want to help this company grow. I would like to get rich if this company goes public. Yeah. It wasn't a prank. No, no, it wasn't a prank. And I knew I wasn't going to get rich, really, because I was too late getting in. But I thought, you know, I make a little money. But I also really liked the founders. Like, I met them uh, I was because I was interviewing at a lot of places. And I should also, you know, be clear, like, I chose this from among a bunch of different places where I, I could have gone. And I, and I really liked what they did. I love the way they talk about media. Their whole business is about forget about buying ads, build your own website, and draw customers to you. So I thought, oh, Just great. sounds good. Yeah, it, 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 it is good. I mean, it works. Except for it, when it works, it's great. And I like the founders. They were not like 22-year-olds. They were in their 40s. They had both gone to grad school at MIT. One's an engineer. One's a sales guy. I thought, okay, these guys – and they, they're very savvy. I thought, okay, cool. This would be great. I could work with these guys, and I like them. I, like, I really genuinely like them. And I thought, if I go to a big company – I'll just sort of get swallowed up into the PR machine. Right, and this and, is a you know, big-ish company, about 500 people. About 500 people at the time. Now I think it's maybe close to 1,000. But yeah, so it was, it was big-ish, but still small enough that I thought, oh, I could – and young enough. Like it hadn't even gone international at this point. So right. I thought there's a huge opportunity for these guys to scale just by taking what they have built in the United States and go pop, pop, pop to each new market, to each new country. And they announce your hire and it gets <clears> some uh, – generates publicity for them, which is a good thing. There's some head scratching with folks like myself. Like, yeah, like, what are you doing thinking? this? Yeah. But all right, God bless. Let them try. You, you get there. <laughs> what day do you realize this is not going to work out? Is it day one or how long mm. does it take to sink in? Day one was a scary day because I got there and none of the people that I thought I was working with or working for were there. And I ended up finding out this guy gives me a tour around and I kind of thought he's someone's admin – and then it turns out, no, he runs the content team, and I'm kind of working for him. But even more scary, it's like, well, I don't know if you really work for me. You sort of work for that other guy, but he's not here. And like, what am I – what do you want me to do? And like, I don't know. What did he say you want you to do? Like, I don't know. He didn't say. So day one was a little scary. But, you know, you settle in. You think – I sort of also made this resolution to myself. Okay, this is going to be a tough adjustment culturally, you know, in terms of personality-wise and – so whatever happens in this next move, like I'm spending a year because I just spent like a half year at ReadWrite and bailed out just as I got there, and I thought I can't do that again. So whatever I do, I'm here for a year. Maybe a good soldier, good also soldier. Vest. Right, right. right, I'll vest. If you say a year, you vest. But I'm just going to shut up. You know, learn. If it sucks for a while, it might suck for a few months. If it sucks for the whole thing, at the end of the year, I'll go. But I should expect that it's not going to be. Oh my God, it's great, and just be open minded and go in like that. So I had sort of resolved that. So then a few months in, I really thought like, okay, this really, really isn't working. And then I I started trying to find different ways to dig my way out of that. And every time I would try to dig my way out, I would make a mistake and screw it up even more, you know? So how much How much of this is your story about having a difficult time working at a company that really wasn't your dream company to work with? And how much of it is your story about someone who's in his 50s going to work at a company that's geared around employing 20-somethings? 
I think it's about half and half. I don't know what you what your sense was after reading it. Did you feel like I should do like a page count analysis and look at it? But I feel like it it's sort of what I tried to do structurally was set it up with like funny stuff at the beginning of just my story, like hook you with a narrative, then kind of step back and say, here's this story set against a larger picture of what's happening in tech and in the valley and issues around age and around diversity and culture fit. Talk about some of those big issues, business model issues, financial models, and then kind of cut back to the narrative. But it was well, hard to weave me, those two stories. Put it another way. If you were a 20-something and went to work there, if you were Dan Lyons, mid-20s, do you think you would have had an equally miserable experience? No, I think I would have had a blast. I think it might have been really, really fun. In fact, in my 20s, I worked at a trade paper, a computer trade paper called PC Week that was in the Prudential Center in Boston. And it was all young people right out of college, most of them like journalism majors from BU. Some of them, uh, David Cherbuck was one from Forbes. Anyway, a bunch of us. And we had a blast. And it was like a total party scene. And it was great. And we had a really good time. I don't know, personality-wise, HubSpot's a little different. It's a little more sort of upbeat. It's a little more culty and very much drink the Kool-Aid. Even at PC Week, we were journalists. We were still like, you know... Curmudgeons, right? Curmudgeons and dyspeptic. the asses and and sneer and throw paper. And cynical. You know what I mean? Like no matter – and when you see some company says something, you're like, oh, that's bullshit, right? Right. That's that's your normal – uh, thing the Hubspot people don't have that thing. Like they were really like they really believe. Right, and that's stuff. what I'm that, asking. Like, it's, yeah, so, I, I'm wondering if this if that would have been an equally tough fit for you. I think in your it would. Yeah, right. even in my 20s, it would have been. I would have liked the partying part of it, and like everybody was the same age as me, and I would have made more friends because I'd have more people to hang out with. That Hubspot, like, I kept kind of the only people I had to hang out with were like the old people who were like 35. Who were like the grown-ups. In other words, anyone who had ever worked at any other company before that was a grown-up. And we should do some truth in advertising, right? Like in your book, at least, there's not a lot of really salacious stuff, right? There's no, a no, story no. about all right, some sales guys got drunk and there was some sex in a in a room, yeah, yeah. but that's kind of it, right? It's yeah, not yeah, Wolf yeah. of Wall Street. Um, Unfortunately, I wish it the, were. There could be a story about being a fact checker at Forbes that would be much more salacious. Actually, senior editor at Forbes. There's lots of salacious really? stories that we told at Forbes. Oh, sure, I, I heard a couple it. while we were there. Yeah, yeah, but, uh, yeah. Different podcast, I think. Um, but it's not. I mean, it's it's not. There's not outrageously bad no. behavior. Um, it, this is this is a company of 500 people. It's not for you. Can you imagine had you taken one of these other jobs you were considering, presumably in Silicon Valley, that things would have worked out differently? Yeah, I think they would have been better. I think the the one that I really turned down. I don't want to say where it was, but from about a month in, I was like, oh man. Not only did I pick the wrong place, like. I could have been getting there, and and yeah, I yeah, it would have been much. I think because now, you read a lot of stories and talk to a lot of people who work at some of those companies, and they don't seem like a blast to work for either, especially for a, a cranky forty or fifty something writer. That's right? the problem. Amazon right? isn't a joy, isn't a blast to work at. <laughs> Apple's not a ton of fun to work at. I think in many cases, Google might be. Yeah, Facebook. I don't know. Facebook. I think would be a lot like HubSpot. I think it's really young and really true believers, like really Kool Aid drinkers, but. Yeah, I yeah I, I don't know if um, well, and you hear a lot of stories about guys like us who, you know, get wooed out of the Wall Street Journal and go to some VC firm, and three months in, six months in, they're kind of gone because it's just like, and you never talk about it, you never hear about it because they're smart enough not to write a book about it, unlike me. But I mean, I think a lot of people make that transition into those companies and then often run up against the same thing. Yeah. It's disrupted. It's out this week as we're speaking about it, or whenever you listen to this podcast, it will be available. We're going to talk about it some more. First, a commercial or two. Hang on. This episode is brought to you by SoFi. SoFi is transforming the financial world by offering great rates on things like student loan refinancing, personal loans, and mortgages. They look at your financial potential, and if there's promise, they back you for life, which means when you borrow with SoFi, you get an awesome set of perks 
like career services, member happy hours, nationwide networking events, unemployment protection, and even an entrepreneur program, which I'm sure is great, but is difficult to say. The idea is that SoFi succeeds when their members succeed, so they'll do all they can to help their members out. Learn more about what they can do at SoFi.com. That's S-O-F-I.com. Terms and conditions apply at SoFi.com. Today's episode of Recode Media is also brought to you by FrameBridge. FrameBridge is a cool Washington, D.C.-based startup. They're disrupting the traditional framing market. Framing stores are expensive. These guys are not. They have a cool workflow and technology that makes it super easy and affordable to custom frame the things you love. My kids are doing these really, they're not great pictures, but they're memorable, so we're going to keep them. And we're going to frame them right through FrameBridge. They can frame anything. They'll send you a mailing kit for your artwork, your posters, your album covers. You send it along to them. Their experts frame it. They send it back to you in days, fully ready to hang. You can even upload pictures from your phone to your Instagram feed. That is pretty darn cool. Pricing starts at just 39 bucks. The best part, all shipping is free. They're giving a special offer to our listeners this month. Just enter the offer code RECODE at checkout, and you get 15% off your first FrameBridge order. That's FrameBridge.com. You get the special offer if you use the code RECODE. That's R-E-C-O-D-E, and you get 15% off. Thanks, FrameBridge. We're back here with Dan Lyons. He's talking to me. I'm Peter Kafka. We're talking about your book, Disrupted. I also want to talk a bit about your career up until the point you wrote Disrupted. You started off, you said it in a trade journal or two? Yeah, I, well, it was daily papers. And then I happened to work at a daily paper with David Turbuck. And he was one of the founding guys at Forbes.com. Right. We both have a Forbes lineage. He and I actually went to high school together. So he and I go way, way, way back. But he went to this place called PC Week and then called me up after a while and said, you should come over here. It's great. And this PC industry is going to be huge. It was like in the 80s. And so you were a writer who ended up writing about technology and were yeah. a nerd yeah, yeah. that ended up writing. Yeah. No, I was more of a journalist who decided to go over and learn about tech and get a specialization. And uh, Which I think up until a point was most of us, right? Most people who are writing business journalism or technology journalism didn't come with that background. In fact, they often know very little about it. Yeah, well, I mean, were you, were you a coder or a... No, not really. You weren't a... No, I could turn on a Macintosh. That was that's still my main skill. Now iPhone as well. Well, you cover the media, though, so that's different, Yeah, too, I consume right? media. So, it's very... It's good for lazy people. It's a good beat. But I mean, like, yeah, right. But yeah. You watch cable, and like, hmm, that's interesting. I'll write but about that. It's more the skills are about meeting people and telling stories. Right. And, yeah. And so I met you at Forbes 90s? Yeah, I started in 98 there. And you... When did you start? 97. Oh, Okay. So I was a fact checker, and you were a writer that you, you just ended up out of the pit, and you wrote about kind of gnarly, semi-boring enterprise software, right? Really boring, yeah. So, uh, was that stuff that you wanted to write about, or stuff that got assigned to you? I got put on the enterprise beat. I liked it. It was a, you know big iron kind of stuff, IBM, Digital Equipment Corp, believe it or not, yeah. back in those days, Compaq. It was, it was some PC stuff, but also like Sun Microsystems. They, they, you know, it was a little loosey-goosey at Forbes, and it, it was just all tech, but we kind of had to stake out our thing, so... Right. So you were good at it, and did yeah. you think, this is what I'm going to do sort of the remainder yeah. of my career? Yeah. And then at some point, it comes to light, there's this awesome blog called Fake Steve Jobs. What was it actually called, Fake Steve Jobs? It was Jobs? called The Secret Diary of Steve Jobs. Secret Diary of Steve Jobs. It's a sensation. People are, are loving it. This is sort of early, sort of post-boom, 2003, Two, six, seven, eight, like that, yeah. It was yeah. around the time of the... I got lucky. I started the Jobs blog a year or two before the iPhone came out. So I got all the upside of the iPhone hysteria. So there's a bit of buzz about it, and then it turns out within Forbes, oh, it's Dan Lyons is writing it. Yeah. Um, what prompted you to, to write the blog, and why'd you do it anonymously? Partly it was boredom, I, and I wanted to write about fun, consumery stuff, and not, you know, all that IBM stuff. I also, I really wanted to work for .com, and I went to Forbes.com and said, can I get a transfer out of print to .com? And they were like, no. 
Uh, I remember that very well because I was advocating for her because you were one of the few – I was at the dot-com uh, at that point, and you were one of the few guys who worked at the magazine who could write for the dot-com, meaning you would get up in the morning, you would write something, probably took you an hour, and then we would publish it, and no one else in the magazine could get their head around it. Well, remember you, that? You it, was like, that. A, it was a weird world where like – the magazine was still seen as like the major league team, yeah. and the other one was like the farm league team, yeah. the dot com, and people would get demoted down yeah, to, I got the demoted dot com. to the dot com. And it's like I was praying, like, please promote me to dot com because I could see that was the future. And we thought it'd be great to hire you, but I remember specifically it was that you got paid too much because you, you got a oh, paid really? a middle class salary. Wow, is that why? Yeah. Those bastards. Yeah. There was no way a dot com could afford someone who made what you made, which I didn't was not, that, very was not much that much. Yeah, yeah. right. Oh, you know how much it was. Yeah, look, at, look at you. Yeah. You actually know that? Yeah. So what's sad is I... I and what's sad is you're we'll like... that part. You're like, yeah, I am so embarrassed that you were that old and making so little. But so then I thought, shit, I'm going to get to be, you know, five years from now, whatever, how long print runs. If I just stay riding on this dinosaur over here, when it all goes digital, I'm not going to know anything. So you could see that future. And we knew... We oh, knew yeah. That we, we were writing about it, right? right? This is what we're covering. Although there's like, an amazing number of people who do what we do are very clueless about sort of the, the industry they work at. I mean, no, yeah. I actually think that's one of the huge issues in journalism. I'm, I realized at age 40 or whatever that I had made this whole career in journalism and never really understood where the money came from. And nobody does. And in journalism school- You take pride in not knowing it. Exactly. Don't talk to the business the wall. guys. You don't know. And you don't know who our advertisers are. And you don't even know how that side of the business works. And it's like, and we're, we're business journalists. Yeah clueless about our own business. We don't deign to learn about our own business. Yeah. And it was like, and I realized that was a little weird. And, uh, but I, I knew enough about it to know, okay, this is, this is where things are going. And so I thought I got to just start learning how to blog and learn about HTML because sooner or later Forbes is going to like collapse and I'm going to be looking for a job and I'm going to need these like skills. Like, so I started writing the blog, not because I had this big passion about Steve Jobs. I started like five blogs. That one just happened to take off. And then I was like, oh, maybe I'll keep writing it. And uh, like the only person I showed it to was Cherbuck. I said, oh, look, at I'm doing this funny yeah. thing. And he was like, that is funny, dude. And he kind of shared it. But it just got an audience by accident. It was accident. brilliant. It was yeah. a satire of Steve Jobs. It was a satire of the Apple cult. It was also a satire of, of media. There's right. some really sharp stuff there about the way tech media works and business journalism works. Because like, if you put yourself in the mind of like how Steve Jobs viewed us, yeah. it was like really fun. Because yeah. like, yeah, we, we are... Yeah, we're pretty easy to manipulate. Um, and then it, <laughs> so it becomes a big deal. There are people desperately trying to figure out who you are. Eventually, you become unmasked. And then at some point, that transferred, that became a, a, another job at Forbes, right? You finally actually did get paid to make that blog. Right. Tim Forbes made a deal with me where they said, okay, we'll become the advertiser on your blog. This and is they once you've been us. unmasked, right? Yeah. Actually, no. I went to them before I was unmasked and told them what I was doing. And we were in the midst of putting it together and we were going to unroll it, I think, on like a Labor Day, right after Labor Day. And the New York Times figured it out. Brad Stone. Uh, yeah, just a couple weeks before and this is big shit so And I've always wondered, the, the timing was so convenient and so, in a way, so good for Forbes. I wondered if they didn't leak it themselves. I don't think they're remotely sophisticated enough. No, no, no offense, Monty, if you're still listening to this, but I don't think that was, I don't think they had the ability to pull that off. Yeah, so maybe it was just a happy accident. So but they, so you end up, you end up at Forbes... And then you end up doing what you want to do. You're getting paid to make a, a blog. It's great. Yeah, it was great. Fast forward to you're at the Washington Post. Well, no, 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 Newsweek, 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 owned by the Washington Post at the time. Right. And I'm, I, this is this is how sophisticated I was. You were like, should I go to Newsweek? I'm like, yeah, you should go to Newsweek. Well, they're, they're always going to be around. Did you say that? Yeah, I gave you that awesome advice. I'm glad that no one ever remembered that <laughs> except me. Well, I remember it as thinking, okay, it's 2008. Stephen Levy already took a buyout. So did a bunch of other people. That's why there's this gap in the tech coverage. So they're looking for, that's why they're looking for someone is because they offered a buyout and they didn't really want him to take it, but he took it. 
So I went in knowing, okay, this place is already kind of in trouble. But I remember saying to my wife, like, look, they may not be, like, I don't think there's going to be a news week, but I just want to work in a place like this for a few years before it's all over. And then I'll leave journalism and I'll go do something else. But I just really want to see what this is like. Because even then I had started kind of thinking about leaving journalism and going to work for a tech company. I had even interviewed a couple of times when I was still at Forbes. But but I really wanted to see that and experience that. And it was and it's great. a plum job, right? Oh, it's like, it's, it's, Newsweek still exists. It's still a thing. People still give you access, right? You can still... Yeah, in those days. I don't know what it's like now because it's a completely different publication. It's been bought and sold and bought and sold right. a bunch of times. But in those days, yeah, it was still like John Meacham was there, Fareed Zakaria, John Alter, Howard Feynman, right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, Eleanor Clift. It was just like this amazing – and the editors – grown-ups did journalism. It was oh. considered to be a serious thing. And you yeah. got to be the tech guy. And yeah, and like my editor was Kathy Devaney, who's Dennis's ex-wife, who's like the smartest, best editor you've ever met in your life. Like, I mean, just brilliant. So you're working for an editor who's, you know, you would take a bullet for, you just love and admire. So no, it's great. And you can write about anything. Just, you know, you got to pitch it and you got to get into the book. But, oh, it's great. Dan Gross was there, who's the economics guy. I mean, it's great. And that's a gig you liked a lot. And then at the beginning of, of Disrupted, you say the, the fact that it all collapsed overnight, basically, took you by surprise. Well, no. My, yeah, well, I got blindsided by my own personal situation. When it was sold, uh, the Post sold it and announced they were selling it. So we were all kind of knew it was over. And then they merged it with the Daily Beast. Right. Actually, they Barry sold Sidney Harmon. Sidney Harmon then merged it with Barry Diller and the Daily Beast. Right. Tina Brown took over. And yeah, things got a little chaotic. So you were there in the Tina Brown era for a while. I was, yeah. So almost everybody else got a package and left. And in my case, they said, no, we like you. And Tina likes you. We had to go interview for our jobs, like the jobs we already had. Like, yeah. And I didn't realize that's what I was doing. I got a call like, oh, Tina really wants to meet you. She loves your stuff. She wants to meet you. Can you come in Thursday at 1? I was like, great. And I mentioned to Tom Watson, who you probably know, like, oh, great, I'm going to get to meet Tina. And he's like, dude, no, you're interviewing for your job. Do you not know what that's about? And I was like, no, I thought she just wanted to talk. It's like, no, 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 no. She, you know, you're going to go in there and then she's going to be like, no, X, no, no, no. But I kept my job, but it was very chaotic. And then I thought at some point we had turned a corner and things were being, were more secure and more stable there. And I was starting a tech blog. I was going to have, it was when, remember when they had Andrew Sullivan's blog? Yeah, it's a big deal. And they were like, okay, now we're going to make a tech blog. And you're going to be like the Andrew Sullivan of tech. You're going to be our crazy tech guy over here. And that's what you're going to do. And I was like, oh, that's great. I could sink my teeth into that. It's like fake Steve only under my name. But I can just be Andrew Sullivan, you know? And then it's some, somehow in the middle of that, they decided that's not what they wanted to do or whatever. And I just got called one day like, it's over, bye. And, and how much of that, again, do you think was you made a certain amount of money, made more money yeah. than a lot of other writers probably at the time, was just age slash money mm -hmm. plus digital economics doesn't work out. So it's maybe a recurring theme, right? That's some of the things we're talking about here. I'm making too much money. Thank you. For you're your you're too well paid. I'm too well paid. That's, that's, you know, that's always been my problem in life is just so much money. Just so much of it. I but it's freaky, right, though? Because you were yeah. working for a living. You weren't a gazillionaire. I didn't have you, a lot of money, yeah. You, you were, but this is what we're talking, this is the theme of this interview and the theme of your book, right, is, is you sort of scale up the ladder. You're not mm. fantastically well paid, but you're better paid than someone who's 25, very this often. is the theme of the interview. That's the it theme. Seems to be what That's we're what we're going about. with. Okay. It seems to, well. It's, this is part of my anxiety, right? When I read your book. Like, <laughs> oh, oh, I see. I see. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. my Dan Lyons. No, no, you're right. No, and and in fact, the line that uh, my editor said to me when she called to tell me it was over because they never tell you you're fired. They tell you that your job no longer exists. It's like well, yeah, that doesn't make sense. the job itself is just gone. But yes, the job doesn't exist. And then she said, "Look, I think they just want to hire younger people. They can take your salary and hire five kids right out of college." And I was like, uh, yeah, okay. 
Yeah, I, I, I can see that. But uh, yeah, that's that's the sound of me right? worrying, worrying about this. But I've, I've I've always been worried about that. And you wonder scenario. if it's even possible to have a middle class life as a journalist anymore. You know, you used to be able to even at a place like the Boston Globe, you could you could have a job and you wouldn't get rich. You know, when you went to journalism thinking of getting rich, but you could buy a house and pay your mortgage and. Have yeah. kids. You and know, by the way, welcome to the working world, right? This is the rise of Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump, right? Is this general anxiety about that? Yeah, you're right. It is all this anxiety about. I actually think there's there's a generational thing too. I originally had some of this in my book, and it kind of got edited out in in one of the rewrites, but or the drafts. But but um, they're like my dad came out of college, was an engineer, went to work at a division of AT and T called Western Electric, and he spent his entire career there. My dad I mean, was a 3M lifer. Yeah, but he did all sorts of different jobs, and yeah. he moved to Ireland at one point and ran EMEA for them. And he did; he had all sorts of opportunities. He could move into international. He was one of the first Western business guys into China. Like he had, did all ex- exciting things within the context of a big company. And I don't think he ever got paid a huge salary, but he retired with a bunch of stock and a pension for life and health insurance is paid for right, life. The promise life. works, right? You get the job, you work at the company, you do good work, you work throughout your career, it all works out. Yeah, I think. And uh, I mean, now some of those companies are rewriting the rules after the game is over, like IBM and AT&T are kind of saying, well, well now we can't afford to give you that health insurance. You're going to have to pay a little more. But yeah, essentially that was how what work was. Then now there's this thing of like, no, you're going to have 30 jobs in the course of your life. That's what Reed Hoffman's idea. You have a tour of duty. And I think if you're 25 today or 22 today, and that's your expectation coming out of college, and that's what your life is going to be like, you're almost like a freelancer for your whole life. You plug in, plug out, plug in, plug out. My generation went in sort of with the expectations of sort of having what our parents had and then finding out halfway through, like, no. Right. I'm a little younger than you, so I remember hearing you'll have seven to eight jobs over the course of your career. Yeah. Which seemed a little aggressive at the time. Now that's like, that would be quaint. Seven or eight would be. But, I mean, I remember going to Forbes in 98 and thinking, like, I'm going to stay here for the rest of my life. This is, I can't believe it. I've been hired at Forbes. They had a pension. They had a real pension. Remember in those days? Yeah. And they had a 401k. And, and the they por- had old people who slept in their office. <laughs> and that was it during the daytime. They just <laughs> watched during no, meetings. They absolutely did. And that's how you could tell they were like tenured faculty. He's <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, they, it was a very academic, wasn't it? Nobody got fired. Yeah. And they had a two-for-one match on that 401k. Great benefits. It was just, I thought, this is it. This is great. I love the magazine. I like the people I work with. I'm just going to stay here. This is, you know. So I could keep talking about old-timey journalism all, all day long, but I, I want to make sure we talk about your fabulous Hollywood career as well. Oh, God, Because yeah. you have gotten to work for one of the best shows on TV, yeah. maybe one of the top two or three. Uh, you work at Silicon Valley. Or you did one season with them? Two seasons Two now seasons. I've done, and I'm hoping to do another, but I don't know. You never know if they'll ask you back. Yeah. So you, you did that for a year, left. This is sort of, I'm trying to remember the chronology. I did it for a sort of season. It was like 14 weeks. I went out there and then I actually went back to HubSpot. I was going to leave HubSpot. That was going to be my, my graceful exit was I was, had been there just about a year, got this call out of the blue. Do you want to come work on this TV show on HBO? I was like, yeah. yeah. Like, yeah, yes, I do. Um, and I went and gave notice and said, you know, and I figured I'll do the 14 weeks and then I'll find another job. And, but it'll give me a nice way to get out of HubSpot and save face. And they said, no, we want to make it a leave of absence. They, I think they wanted to get some publicity off of it or something. I don't know why they did this. What is the whiplash of going from the Silicon Valley writer's room yeah. with grown-ups telling dick jokes to go into HubSpot, which does not have grown-ups, I guess. Um, you probably can't make a dick joke. No dick jokes. No dick jokes allowed. Yeah, it was, it was about as extreme a change as you can imagine. Like, I mean, uh, Hollywood writer people, uh, the, the writers in that room anyway, are comedy guys are much more like journalists. I mean, only if we, 
you know, yeah, we're about as filthy as, as those guys are, I guess. But but like really cynical, really dark. And in fact, a lot of what that show is like is like being a journalist. It's 10 writers. We go and we visit companies and we gather material. They read – they all read Business Insider and Recode. Recode yeah, they love Kara. I mean they love Kara. So they, they're reading all this stuff. They're watching all these videos and gathering material just the way you know, we the would. The classic question story. I always ask is how do you parody Silicon Valley in 2015, 2016 when there's companies called Unicorns and – and gaggle There's, and bangaroo. Yeah, or whatever. yeah, that's great. No, well, Alec Berg always said that's his famous line in the room. It's like we don't really have to make anything up. All we have to do is just present what we see, and it's already hilarious, you know. Like and then, and then, what's it like to be a writer on a show where I gather there's a ton of improv, right? The, all the all the actors yeah. are extraordinarily gifted improv comedians. So, how much of the work that you and the other writers do ends up on screen versus it, it varies, they made, right? They yeah. Made up? Yeah, no, it varies. I, I um, And the process is weird. So you sit in a room and you talk and talk and talk, and then someone goes off and does an outline. Well, Alec goes off and does an outline, brings it back, and you beat that up a bunch of times. And then you take the outline, and he gives it to you, and you go make it into a script. And then we beat that up a bunch of times. Then we take it to a table read, hear it out loud with the actors, and then we beat it up a bunch of times, get notes from HBO, beat it up a couple of times. Finally, it's a shooting script, and they shoot the script, but then they shoot a lot of improv off the script. And then in the editing room, it gets put together. So, yeah, things change. So can you see, oh, that was my joke, but then they made it 10 times better by adding those two yeah. lines. Yeah, or uh, a friend of mine was like, that one in that one episode, that was my joke. Remember that day? I was like, yeah, because sometimes you're talking so much and you're not writing anything down. You're just talking and assistants are typing everything down and then people are putting stuff on the whiteboard. You kind of sometimes don't even remember whose joke that was, right? I mean, there's some ones that, that really leap out. Yeah. But yeah, there's a lot of times where you don't remember even where did that come from. And sometimes we'll, we'll go back and be like, there's some I just know. Like there's one guy named Danny O'Keefe who's one of the co-EPs, so Alex Lieutenant, who's hilariously funny and really fast, like super, super, super fast, and has been writing comedy for 20, 25 years. And he has a very twisted sense of humor. And so this, a lot of his best stuff doesn't even get into the script because like whatever. But there are lines where you go like, you know that's a Danny O'Keefe joke. You just know that's his. Do you have a joke that made it on that you, that you, that I, you can I, remember that's your favorite? I think mine was the one about, they're not real journalists. They're tech journalists. Uh, you know, They're not going to take a bullet for you. Very good. I think that was my, but it might have been Alec Berg's and I'm taking credit for it. I don't remember if that was, I wrote that episode better from his outline. And then most of my episode some of it ended up, it was number eight, but some of it ended up in seven, some of it ended up in nine, some of it was gone, and a lot of it was different. Like, it was the one where the guy puts the tequila bottle down and, and the delete key, but in the draft <laughs> I wrote and the outline I had, it was a book. Richard had been given a book about management, and he puts yeah. it down, and ha, 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 the, the book about leadership is the thing that screws up his company. That somehow, in the course of shooting, they decided to make it Trace Comas. I, I love that character. Uh, is he supposed to be Mark Cuban? Is he supposed to be Elon Musk? Is he supposed to be... Uh... I think he's a, a mix, but I think a lot of Cuban. A lot of Cuban. I would so guess good. a lot of Cuban. Originally, it was going to be... We had a whole other character, sort of a scary Eastern European guy. And we, we spent like weeks talking in bad Russian accents, like, you know, I'm not going to do it. <laughs> but And then suddenly they lighted on this idea of, okay, the guy who had a big hit back in the first dot-com yeah. boom. I love that character too because he's just so over the top, you know, and just so broad. And yeah, it's great. Um, and then you went back for this last season, right? Yeah. So yeah. I went back again this past summer and fall. And Dick Costello from Twitter was there. Did you did you spend time with Dick? Yeah, and you had him on your on your podcast, right? Yeah, Kara yeah. talked to him. Yeah, he was unbelievable. Yeah, he like I went in one day, walked into the room, and everybody's already talking, and there's only one chair left. So I pop down, and there's a guy, and I look, and I'm like, oh. Dick Costello's here today, you know, like, and I thought sometimes we'll have like a techie person come in and be like, we pick their brains for yeah. four hours. And lunchtime came 
and he got lunch with everybody. And I was like, oh, are you, are you sticking around for lunch? He's like, oh, no, I'm working here now. And I was like, you are? <laughs> like, really? Like, like, this is fun for you? And he was like, I think it was. And he, he stayed all summer. Like, he did Monday and Tuesday. Yeah. But, and he was really cool and really funny. And, uh, like, at first I was kind of intimidated. But then I think I know I, I remained intimidated the whole time right now. I never really, like. Did you ever have the, hey, I used to write about people like you. And now I'm working with people no, like you we, discussion. I you think just, we just got beyond that conversation because yeah. I knew that. That can't really go anywhere. And he knew where that was going to go. And uh, I don't know. Like, like yeah, the whole time I was like, does he hate me? Like, did I ever write something really bad? I, it Probably. Got, at Gawker, I wrote one thing saying, predicting he would be thrown out of Twitter in uh, 2015. He does read his own press, I'm pretty sure, or did at one point. And so it was one of my big predictions for the years. Like, and it was like, it's not his fault. Nobody can run Twitter, but the guys on Wall Street just want blood. He's going to go. You mentioned Gawker. You had a brief stay there. Didn't work out there as well. Any insight you can share about what it was like to work at Gawker for a couple months? It was not even, it was like four weeks. And I was that, just, that I, I was like a freelancer. Yeah, because I pitched them and said, I think, I like Valleywag. You know, the, there was Sam Biddle and Natasha Tiku and another guy and they were writing it. And I said, but you should try to do some more investigative stuff if you have the appetite for it. I would work like in addition to what they do, let them do the gossipy stuff and I'll do stuff about money. Like, where's the money going? And they said, okay. But, but then by the time I started, Biddle left or moved to something else. Natasha left, another guy left. And then I found out, no, you're going to be writing this all by yourself. And I was like, oh. Again, this is something where I thought, this seems like a great idea for Dan. This is, I probably no. even told you, I probably even offered you that unsolicited advice. Yeah, a lot of people did. And it could have been fun. Like, it could have been a fun thing. I thought, and the thing of it is, uh, Valleywag comes with so much baggage, like that name and that brand, both good and bad, but the bad stuff is bad. And a lot of people just hate it because it is whatever they've been, you know. And some of it they've brought on themselves. So you inherit that baggage and you, and you say, even if you say like, I really want to try to do something different with this, it's very hard to, to wrestle that around. But, but what really happened was I had, uh, I ruptured a disc last February. Like literally I just started that job. I went skiing with my son, ruptured a disc. And it wasn't that I was in agonizing pain. I had one day of agonizing pain and then I just lost the use of my left leg. Like my leg just went numb. And still like the nerve is being pinched by this ruptured disc. It's better now, like I can walk and stuff. But for a long time, it's still numb. Like my leg is part numb. But, and I just thought like, I'm going to be in rehab for a while. And I, and I had this book that I just sold. So I just, I just I can't do this job. I was kind of relieved to get out of there though, because it's bad energy. You know, like there's people really hate that blog. Yeah. You know? Valley Wagon Gawker in general. Yeah. yeah. And then, and then now the whole Hulk Hogan thing has happened. And it's like, I'm just very glad. Actually, I was glad to be out of there when the Geithner stuff happened because I thought like I would have quit that day anyway. I think that that was, I wouldn't have lasted through that. But so it was, it was an uncomfortable thing. But Again, back to this theme. I remember when Nick Denton, who runs Gawker, hired you, he made a big show saying, we embrace diversity in all its many facets, including having this very old person work for yeah, us. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. He kept mentioning your age several times. Look, we have a guy in his 50s working and for us. Isn't that exciting? And he just knocked it out of the park in this thing. And the olds are going to teach the news a few things. And I was like, yeah, no, dude, and it's like, okay, I get it. Like, that's the other, the thing about, it's in the book, too, is that ultimately you end up having to reckon with your mortality and, like, holy shit. Like, like the woman in that Fortune article said about, this startup isn't bad, you're just old. And you realize, like, okay, you know what? Yeah, I am. Like, that started a while ago. <laughs> M.G. Siegler once wrote a thing. Like, and this was, a, back, I was still at Newsweek. Like, you're too old for this shit. Like, he hated me. I don't know why. But he, oh, I, know, I do know why. But anyway, he hated me. And people play so that now, old Now card. a venture capitalist, so he's obviously. 
can't say anything. Can't say anything bad about him. He's a big... No, I mean, he can't say anything bad about other people. Oh, right, right, right. That is the problem. kind of neutered him. But, you know, people used to go after Walt the same way. And I remember Kara leaping to his defense once saying, you know, look, how would you like it if someone latched onto your ethnicity or this and that? Like, it's the same thing, right? And yet it isn't. People feel like they can just... I don't know. Anyway, it's, 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 I'm coming to terms with it. I have little kids, so I can't really be old, but I, I am, I guess. You know, I'm just, someone asked me this morning, do you remember when you were 25, what did 50-year-old people look like to you? And I was like, yeah, of course. They look like, you know. Ancient. Ancient. Get I out of when, here. I remember when, when my cool boss turned 40. Mm. Wow. Cool boss is 40, but he's still pretty cool, man. For 40? Yeah. Yeah, that's pretty, you know, yeah, yeah exactly. No, so, I mean, you realize, like, <laughs> there's no way around it. Right. So what, what's uh, the plan now? You got this awesome book. The awesome mm-hmm. is my, my overused word here, but it is an awesome book. Uh, you're going to go promote it. Then what? Then I am hoping to go back to another season of Silicon Valley or maybe do some other TV writing, either developing something of my own or staffing on something else or write another book. I actually enjoy writing books. I, I enjoy writing. Like I enjoy sitting down and having a topic and doing the research and writing. Or, you know, try to work as a journalist again. It's just... So journalism is still, still a possibility. Well, I, that's the other thing. I, the realization I had, the, even the first summer out in LA, was like, suddenly I was like, because I had started to, you start to think like in a place like HubSpot, like, what's wrong with me? Like, how come I can't be happy here? Everybody else is so happy. They're really happy. Like, and maybe I'm, how come I'm so cynical? And why, why am I so negative? And why am I so, you know, such a hater? Then you get in a room with 10 other people and they're even worse. And you're like, oh, okay, I'm back with my people now. I like, yeah. my tribe. Yeah, I'm back with my tribe. And, and uh, so I also realized like journalists are kind of my tribe too. Like even at Gawker, that was the one good thing about going there was like at least everybody's kind of like us. You know, they're, they're cynical and maybe for me like way, you know, a little way off on that spectrum. But, but no, I like being a journalist. I love like – I love finding a story and being like, oh my god, I figured this out and I'm going to go report it out and get the proof and make my case and – be the first one to tell this story. You know, like getting a scoop still makes me really excited. Don't you get excited when you break yeah, a scoop? Look at this thing. I found this. Thing. I'm the first I want one. To tell you about this thing. Yeah, and you break a lot of scoops, right? So, like, yeah. but it still probably thrills you, right? You get like you get yes, off I'm on it. Embarrassed to admit it, but yes, it is a cheap and fun thrill because it's so fun. It's yeah. like you know, oh my god, I got this. I figured it out. You know, it's it's um, I just watched Spotlight, Spotlight as they call it in Boston, and uh. You could see that happening to those people like, oh, my God. It's a very controversial story. Oh, it's also bigger than we thought. Oh, it's even bigger. It's even bigger. You know, when you start right. pulling the, the threads is, on a story. The problem is if you watch Spotlight and then you go back to writing funding scoops, right? <laughs> it's not quite so noble. <laughs> you go, yeah, you go. <laughs> but I, I can bear that cross on my own. Um, Dan Lyons, I'm glad you were in my tribe. I've been looking forward to this interview for a while. Thank you. You're awesome. And thank you for having me. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this interview as much as I did conducting it, and I really did, you should subscribe to the show over at iTunes. While you're there, you should leave us a review. It should be a good review. Give us five stars. I, I don't know if you're allowed to say that, but I just did. And if you like that, we have more awesome free Recode content for you at iTunes. My boss, Kara Swisher, has a show, Recode Decode. Lauren Good from The Verge has another great one called Too Embarrassed to Ask. All that's available for free at iTunes. Go find it now. We'd also like to thank our sponsors, SoFi, Mac Weldon, and Framebridge. And thanks to Digital Media, the company who makes all this stuff possible. This is Recode Media. I'm back next week with another great guest. See you then.